You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KC, PC, Camino, Placerville, and it's time for the Wednesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Mountain Recreation, locally owned since 2000, retailing seasonal recreation gear, including winter outwear, skis, snowboards, also gear for seasonal or day rentals. Mountain Recreation, open daily, East Main Street, Grass Valley, mtnrec.com. And Four Paws Animal Clinic, providing medical, dental, surgical services, alternative therapies, and cat boarding for cherished companions on Cyril's Avenue, Nevada City. Dr. Susan Murphy and staff proudly support KVMR. F-O-U-R-P-A-U-S-E dot com. After the NPR headlines and local weather, I'll be speaking with Gretchen Bond, Executive Director of the Miners Foundry, about how they're doing in this difficult time for performing arts venues. Also, we'll have some updates on how to recycle your Christmas trees. And we'll have a report from NPR about how Trump's appointees to the Supreme Court might possibly affect future decisions concerning Roe v. Wade. Closing out today's newscast, we'll have a commentary with Jim Hightower. And at 6.30, we'll be broadcasting this week's edition of The Sages Among Us and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines followed by regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Law enforcement officials have now cleared pro-Trump extremists away from the U.S. Capitol building. That's after a mob stormed the building earlier today, gaining access to both the House and Senate chambers and disrupting lawmakers' tally of November's election results. NPR's Tom Bowman was at the scene where isolated clashes were still occurring as night fell and authorities fought to regain control of the situation there. Helmeted police have come out onto the stairs itself. They shot some paintballs and they're pushing back the crowd. The crowd is screaming at them, shame, shame. They're approaching the police on the steps, trying to push toward them, trying to get into the building. But now the police have gained control of the situation. They pushed the protesters out of the building. NPR's Tom Bowman, National Guard troops moved in to help police secure the building. Lawmakers were evacuated. The mayor of Washington, D.C., meanwhile, is declaring a 12-hour citywide curfew starting at this hour that follows the storming of the U.S. Capitol building. Ali Schweitzer with member station WAMU has more. Pro-Trump extremists have breached the Capitol, forcing a lockdown. The president's spokeswoman says the National Guard and other federal law enforcement officials have been called in to help regain control. In a joint statement, the House and Senate Democratic leaders are demanding more, saying, quote, We are calling on President Trump to demand that all protesters leave the U.S. Capitol and Capitol grounds immediately. 
A spokesperson for D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser says it's not yet clear whether the curfew applies to federal property in the city, including the U.S. Capitol grounds. D.C. officials don't have authority over federal land. For NPR News, I'm Ali Schweitzer in Washington. Democrats will effectively control both chambers of Congress as well as the White House. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports, Democratic Georgia Senate candidate John Ossoff has won his runoff election, according to the Associated Press. Ossoff's victory cements Democratic control in the federal government for the first time in a decade. He defeated incumbent Republican David Perdue, an ally of President Trump. The incoming Senate is now split evenly, 50-50, between the Democratic caucus and Republicans. As vice president, Kamala Harris will be able to cast tie-breaking votes. Ossoff's win means Democrats will have the power to hold hearings and bring Democratic legislation to the floor. It is a major setback for the Republican Party and President Trump. Ossoff will be the first Jewish senator from Georgia and the youngest sitting senator at age 33. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News. President-elect Joe Biden condemned today's actions at the Capitol, calling for the restoration of, quote, simple decency and labeling the assault on the building an insurrection. President-elect also called out President Donald Trump, urging him to step up and call for an end to the violence. Trump issued a statement via social media urging people to return home, but also repeated disputed charges of election fraud. You're listening to NPR. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says he's concerned about the violence unfolding in the U.S. Capitol. As NPR's Jackie Northam explains, Trudeau's reaction is more muted than some other world leaders. Prime Minister Trudeau says his government is following the situation at the U.S. Capitol minute by minute. He told a local radio station in Vancouver that he believes American democratic institutions are strong and he hopes everything will return to normal shortly. But the leader of the opposition, Aaron O'Toole of the Conservative Party, called the storming of the Capitol an astonishing assault on freedom and democracy, saying he's saddened to see the chaos grip our greatest ally. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington. Repeating this hour's top story, police have now regained control of the U.S. Capitol after today's unprecedented breach by a mob of Trump loyalists who briefly occupied House and Senate chambers. Acting U.S. Defense Secretary Chris Miller said today the entire D.C. National Guard has been activated. The Capitol breach came earlier today after President Trump exhorted followers on the National Mall to continue to protest election results. Trump has since told followers to go home but continued to falsely call the election fraud. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. And taking a look at the weather for our region, it looks like up here in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, we'll have a low of 43 tonight, high of 50 tomorrow, partly cloudy tomorrow with a little rain on Friday, clearing on Saturday, partly cloudy through next week with highs in the upper 50s. Sacramento will have a low of 39 tonight, high of 53 tomorrow, mostly sunny through next week with highs in the low 60s. And in Truckee, low of 19 tonight, 40, high of 44 tomorrow, partly cloudy tomorrow with a little snow on Friday. And generally partly cloudy weather through next week. I have on the line Gretchen Bond, Executive Director of the Miners Foundry in Nevada City. Welcome to KVMR, Gretchen. Hi, Paul. Thank you. Well, I thought this would be a good time for us to kind of catch up on what's happening with the foundry in these difficult times. And we're in the year 
2021 right now and uh, hoping for a better year. Uh, you know, for our listeners that don't know about the foundry, can you tell us a little bit about what the Miners Foundry is and just a short look at its history? Yeah, well, the foundry um, was actually originally a foundry um, and an ironworks. Um, it was built in 1859, and there were two gentlemen who uh, converted it into a cultural center in the 70s, late 70s. And then in 1989, the foundry was um, donated to the community as a community cultural center, and it has been the Miners Foundry Cultural Center since then, serving the community. And uh, uh, as a cultural center, uh, what kind of events do you do and uh, how do you serve the public in general? Well, we have our own annual events that we produce ourselves, which are things like Fright Night and Jerry Bash and and the New Year's Eve Bash, um, Mardi Gras Ball. We have the craft fairs and um, psychic fair. And then we also present our own music and we do theater in partnership with or with CR stages. Um, and then also we are available to the public so that they can create their own events at the foundry, which is always really wonderful to see what people can do. And then we are also open to private events like weddings and celebrations of life. Uh, so we really serve all aspects of the community. Well, let's get right up to the present time. And uh, venues like the Miners Foundry have been really severely um, affected by the COVID uh, pandemic. And right now you're virtually closed. Um, is that correct? Well, yeah. I mean, we are probably, I would say we're probably 90% closed. We we did finish a, a bar at the very end of the uh, right prior to the pandemic starting. Um, and we did open a cafe so that we are still able to be there for people. Um, and that's open on, you know, Thursday through Sunday mornings. Um, and when we were able to do outdoor events, we did things outdoors, but right now we can't. So we are just planning for the future right now and, and thinking of different ways that we can fulfill our mission while the building is not open. How is the Miners Foundry doing financially at this point? Well, because we are not able to be open for events, um, our finances have been greatly impacted, which I'm sure everybody can understand. Um, we uh, have applied for all the loans and grants that we qualify for, and we've gotten some of them, which has been greatly helpful to us. And um, we're going to continue to do that and also reach out to the community for support. We know this isn't going to last forever. And we want to be able to be here when it's possible for us to open back up. Well, it's not going to last forever, but it's rounding the corner to lasting a year, actually, not too far away from now. What are the best prospects about when things might be able to open up again? That's such a hard thing to say. I mean, I don't think it's going to be something where a magic wand is waved and then all of a sudden everything's opened up. I think we will probably gradually open up the same way we gradually shut down. Um, and, you know, I, I would imagine that there will be an opportunity to do small events to begin with and then 
as things open up more, we'll be able to do larger events uh, for the foundry. We're looking at summer at least to, to try to produce at least one or two things at the park. Um, whether that will happen or not, we don't know. So we just have to continue to move forward with the eye on uh, opening up, but also how are we going to continue to manage while we're closed. Now, I imagine that fundraising is of more urgency now than it normally is because normally you have income from use of the building. And you are in the midst of a fundraising effort right now. Tell us about it. Yes, we are, actually. Um, our our fundraising goal is um, uh, to help sustain us when we are able to open in the fall. That's kind of what we're looking at. Um, and we've raised more than half of the money that we need so far. Um, and the community has been really great and supportive. And it's been just wonderful to to see the uh, everybody coming out and, and helping to support us. So we still have half as much away to go as we've come, but uh, we're anticipating that we'll be able to raise the funds. And how do people find out about how they can uh, contribute? Well, the easiest way is to go on our website, which is minersfoundry.org slash donate, and they can go there and then they'll learn more about the campaign, what the funds are used for, why we need them, Sometimes people have cars lying around in their driveways or boats or things, and we have a car donation program, and they they do a great job of taking care of that. They will come and and get your car, and you don't have to really do much of anything except have the pink slipped, and then they they sell the car and then donate the proceeds to the foundry, which is a really wonderful program for a lot of people. Venues like the Miners Foundry really contribute a lot to the economic uh, uh, input of a community like Nevada City. Uh, tell us about that. So, yes, I mean, we um, in 2018, actually, the Americans for the Arts did a study of arts organizations in Nevada County, and um, they came up with a multiplier so that we could determine how, what our economic impact is. And that has to do with how much money is generated in the community, how many jobs are, are created by the organizations. And the foundry generates six million dollars in you know, economic impact, so to speak, um, with, you know, whether it's jobs or uh, taxes that are generated for local, um, the county and the city. So by supporting the Miners Foundry, you're actually supporting the whole town of Nevada City. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the Foundry has always been there for the community. When there's been an emergency, we are we are the go-to place. We are where people run first and say, could we please do a fundraiser for this thing or that thing? And and we're always very happy to work with organizations or individual people to make that happen. So it's been, we really miss that too. Well, Gretchen, thank you so much for speaking with KVMR. And uh, just one more time, how can people find out more about the Miners Foundry? So the easiest way is to go to our website and that's minersfoundry.org. And slash donate is where they can find out about the campaign. I've been speaking with Gretchen Bond, executive director of the Miners Foundry. And thanks you so much for speaking with KVMR. Thanks, Paul. Have a great day. You bet. I'm speaking with Shavati Karki. Pearl, she's public sector 
manager for Nevada County Waste Management. Also, I'm speaking with David Garcia, and he's Solid Waste Program Manager. Welcome to KVMR, both of you. Thank you. Good to be here, and Happy New Year. We're going to talk about Christmas trees and what to do with them. David, you want to start out, uh, tell us about uh, uh, where people can bring their trees uh, for recycling. Uh, yeah, so we actually, for uh, as long as I can remember, I've been with the county for 13 years. We've had a, a pretty robust Christmas tree recycling program. We have a few drop-off locations throughout the county, and Shivati, I'm sure, um, can talk a little bit more about it. But we have one at the, the Eric Rood Center in Nevada City. Um, the McCourtney Road Transfer Station is also a drop-off facility, so you can drop your Christmas tree off there for free. Um, and that runs from December 26th through February 2nd for both of those locations. Um, and then um, the other program we have is curbside pickup. So if you have a, a, a green waste bin, you can cut your Christmas tree down. And if you can fit it in that bin, you can also dispose of it in that bin. So a few different options for people throughout the community to get rid of their Christmas trees in a safe uh, way. Uh, Shavati, how about uh, uh, other stuff for Christmas, like lights, tinsel, stands, and all the odds and ends that go with uh, with Christmas? Um, right. So, you know, recycling is pretty straightforward these days. It's, it's clean paper, clean plastic, or glass and metal. It goes into recycling. A lot of things that people think might go into recycling um, with Christmas um, gift wraps or paper bags or cardboard boxes just make sure it has no um, pencil on it no you know mixed materials um, if it does then it does go in the trash so if you have broken string of lights or if you have bubble wrap or packaging airbags, they all go in the trash. Same with anything with foil on it uh, or food. Okay, so basically then uh, let's just say you have your spot where you put your your uh, trash cans at the end, mm-hmm. of, the, end of the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what you can do with the trees then and some of these other things and just essentially put it next to those so they'll be picked up part of the uh, as part of the regular route. Is that correct? Uh, not next to them. It needs to be in the can. Okay. So anything that's trash goes in your trash can. And if it's a tree, like David said, you can cut it up into like three-foot sections and it can, it'll fit in your green waste cart. And... Uh, David, how long will this uh, service be offered? Again, it's going to run through uh, February 2nd. So there's still plenty of time for you to get your Christmas tree recycled for free. There Mm -hmm. you go. And uh, McCourtney Road Transit Station, just so you know, is 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. Tell us a a little bit about uh, each of you, your job descriptions and what you do. Shavati, you can go first. Um, So... As you mentioned, I'm the public sector manager representing waste management. I work closely with the county. My job is contract compliance, uh, government relations. I work closely with David Garcia and other members from Nevada City and uh, Grass Valley as well. And then the second portion of my job is also to provide um, outreach and education to 
the community, whether it's our commercial business customers or residential customers, and me and a team may do that via uh, regular publications or media or uh, events and such. So if I'm a new person that just moved to Nevada County and I want to make a connection to have my trash and everything picked up, um, where do I go to make the connection? Um, if you just go on our website, it gives you the little uh, number to call in. And uh, the customer service is very good about taking uh, setting you up. Uh, David, uh, tell us about your uh, job. Yeah, I'm the solid waste program manager for unincorporated Nevada County. I work closely with Shivati and waste management to make sure that all our service needs are met throughout the community. And I also help oversee the operation at the, the transfer station, again, working closely with waste management and also managing the closed landfill facility um, and, um, you know, a lot of other activities such as, you know, recycling education and outreach activities, grant uh, activities. So basically anything revolving around diversion, recycling, uh, trash, green waste, I'm, I'm usually involved in some level. And again, we, we have a lot of um, collaborations. For example, we work, the county works with the Fire Safe Council. We work with, obviously, waste management. Um, when we, we do go after grant opportunities to, to have programs throughout the community. So we, we have our hands in a lot of different um, aspects of, of, again, solid waste, diversion, recycling. Um, but the best resources, if you go to mynevadacounty.com and go to the solid waste homepage, you, we have a lot of links and resources about where you can take different materials. And um, the, you know, the big thing that's going on, obviously, with a lot of our programs is, are affected by COVID. So, um, you know, I, I do want to mention that we have a lot of programs that are still impacted or still on hold, such as our battery recycling programs, et cetera. So, um, we have a lot of programs, and and hopefully here in the next few months we can get a lot of the ones that are impacted um, back to full 100% capacity. Shivanti, is there anything else you'd like to uh, tell our listeners about? Yeah, just uh, two quick things. When you're taking the tree over to the boxes, make sure you deposit them in the box and not on the ground outside. Um, and then also there's a community Facebook group that people can join to um, join in conversations about recycling and reducing waste. It's called Waste Not Nevada County. It's a community group on Facebook. And then lastly, if you go to sustainability.wm.com, you can learn of all the ways that uh, waste management um uh, aids in sustainability of our uh, planet and learn a lot more of what's happening uh, today. Thank you. Shavati and David, uh, thank you so much for speaking with KVMR and Happy New Year. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Next up, this report from NPR. For nearly half a century, the Supreme Court has ruled that women have a right to abortion and access to abortion. But now, for the first time, there is a new conservative supermajority on the high court, including three Trump appointees. And that may well spell defeat for abortion as a constitutional right. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. 
1973, when the Supreme Court handed down Roe v. Wade, the vote was 7 to 2. But since then, the court's composition has moved inexorably to the ideological right. At the same time, however, public opinion polls have showed large majorities supporting abortion rights in most cases, and those approval ratings have remained remarkably stable over the years. On the Supreme Court, however, the centrist conservatives are gone, replaced by justices more passionately opposed to the notion of a constitutional right to abortion. So the question now is how fast and how far does the court want to move? Among constitutional scholars, there are basically two schools of thought. Many expect the Supreme Court to systematically hollow out Roe v. Wade, but not explicitly overturn it. Professor Josh Blackman predicts the slow evisceration of Roe until the right to abortion is just a right on paper. So it's like this sarcophagus of Roe, that you have the outside tomb, but there's nothing inside, just an empty shell. But NYU law professor Melissa Murray thinks that the time is ripe for anti-abortion forces to strike most forcefully. There is, I think, a galvanizing view within the pro-life movement that the time has come to call the question. Why wouldn't you do it now when you have this 6-3 supermajority? Mallory Quigley, a vice president of the anti-abortion Susan B. Anthony List, says her group is trying lots of different approaches aimed at undermining and ultimately overturning Roe. What the pro-life movement is doing is uh, throwing every type of spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. Anti-abortion forces are in fact prevailing in many state legislatures, enacting lots of different laws that restrict abortion. As of now, there are four cases challenging those laws pending before the Supreme Court and more than a dozen cases pending in the federal appeals courts. Among the different restrictions are bans on abortions at early stages of pregnancy, with six states banning abortions after six weeks. That's before many women even realize they're pregnant. Then, too, there are bans on the most common method of surgical abortions. There are laws making it more difficult to obtain medical abortions using pills. There are laws making it illegal to terminate a pregnancy because of fetal abnormality. And there are laws that make it difficult to impossible for clinics that perform abortions to remain open. Abortion rights lawyers like Stephanie Toti know they're facing an uphill battle. Roe v. Wade has been settled precedent for nearly 50 years, and yet everybody thinks that that we might be on the cusp of, of that precedent being overturned. And so I think it's really important to keep up the fight. If the direction the conservative court is going on abortion is clear, Less clear is how the conservative justices will get there. NYU's Professor Murray points to an idea promoted in an opinion written by Justice Clarence Thomas, which sought to link Planned Parenthood, contraception, and abortion to the racist views of the eugenics movement in the early 20th century. Though Thomas wrote for himself only in that case, Murray notes that other conservative justices last year adopted a similar approach in striking down laws permitting non-unanimous jury verdicts because of their racist roots. And she suggests that may be laying the groundwork for a new approach to overturning Roe. What could be better than to take down Roe on the ground that it is not just wrong in terms of your moral view of where life begins, but it's wrong because it's about racial injustice. Indeed, those opposed to abortion already use the phrase anti-discrimination laws to refer to laws that ban abortions based on fetal abnormality. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. 
You're listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino, Placerville, and this is the Wednesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. Closing out today's newscast, we have a commentary from Jim Hightower. The rich are different from you and me. For one thing, they're rich. Among the super rich, though, there tends to be a peculiar sense that their net worth is a testament to their true worthiness. Thus, they seem to cling desperately to the very idea of being extremely wealthy. This leads to one specific difference between them and us. Most of us favor a wealth tax to help bridge the gaping chasm of inequality in our society. The rich do not. Indeed, we hear shrieks of abject horror and cries of doom coming from corporate boardrooms and other defenders of the plutocratic order. It would be comical if they weren't so pathetic. They exclaim that such a tax will destroy entrepreneurial motivation, sap innovation, punish success, and, get this, spur a wave of divorces. The psyches of the rich are so fragile, goes this line of bull that a tiny tax on people with more than $50 million in wealth would keep them from getting out of bed in the morning. Jamie Dimon, a billionaire Wall Street banker, disingenuously asserts that super-wealthy people like him would, quote, be happy to pay more in taxes. But he fears the government would just squander it on giveaways, quote, to interest groups and stuff like that. I have to admit that Jamie does know his stuff, After all, he weaseled billions of dollars from us taxpayers to bail out his bank during the 2007 Wall Street crash. Far from squandering revenues on such welfare cases as Diamond, those supporting the wealth tax specifically call for the money to fund universal access to higher education, free health care for all, restoration and expansion of our national infrastructure, and other direct efforts to restore the common good. This is Jim Hightower saying, to help advance passage of the wealth tax and our nation's democratic ideals, go to Citizens for Tax Justice, www.ctj.org. That's our newscast for this evening. Next up, we have The Sages Among Us, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening.